perhaps we ought to bring this conversation back to the matter of evidence. You, as am I, are a man of reason. There is no good reason to believe in God, and certainly not any evidence. But there we must come to the very existence of reason itself, and whether that may constitute what you call evidence. You're listening to All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer and director of this show. I maintain a site called EssentialCSLewis.com. This is the fifth program in a series of eight discussing content from C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist, with the author of that book, Peter S. Williams. The focus today is the fourth chapter entitled The Argument from Reason. Before taking that plunge, allow me to briefly review the ground covered so far. Last episode, the spotlight was on chapter three, which is called A Desire for Divinity, with a question mark. And prior to that, the second chapter was covered in the third program. The second show dealt with content from chapter one, and the debut episode provided a concise overview of the entire book. I mention all that to encourage you to give a listen to each of those shows if you haven't already. How can you accomplish such a task? I'm glad you asked. Go to EssentialCSLewis.com and check the All About Jack show archives there, or you might find it easier to browse past shows where I host the podcast itself. That address is allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Again, that's allaboutjack.podbean.com. Let me now welcome back my guest co-host to this fifth program, Peter Byram. Thank you for joining me again, Peter B. Thank you, William. I'm having a great time making this series. Well, Peter B. is a freelance video editor and, among other things, is a strong advocate of defending the Christian faith through apologetics. Something we haven't mentioned up to this point is the fact that he produced and even voiced some of the dramatic clips you hear at the beginning of each of these shows in this series. I'll have him share at the end of today's show what was all involved in doing that, and maybe he'll give some behind-the-scenes details about those experiences. Until then, I'll let him start his co-hosting duties by introducing Peter S. Williams and welcoming him back to the show. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure, again, to welcome Peter S. Williams back to the show. He is a Christian philosopher and apologist, the assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimla Collins School of Journalism and Communication, that's part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. He's authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism and C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Welcome back to the show, Peter S. Williams. Thank you very much, Peter B. It's a joy to be with you both. Well, with all that out of the way, let's kick off the questions for the argument from reason with this. Richard Dawkins and the New Atheist are well known for claiming to be champions of reason and claiming that belief in God is irrational. So it seems quite ironic that if they were to debate Lewis, he would probably be appealing to the very existence of reason itself as an argument for God. How does that argument work? Well, indeed, this is, uh, as you say, quite an ironic uh, thing uh, that uh, most of the new atheists uh, haven't even paid any attention to this uh, argument from reason, which was 
one of the arguments that weighed most heavily uh, with Lewis uh, as he moved from a naturalistic worldview uh, towards believing in God. And you could say really it works in, in, in two stages. That The first stage is an argument that when you think about what is going on when humans think about things, uh, you can see that that uh, doesn't fit within uh, the world as described by the materialistic and naturalistic worldview. So that, uh, first of all, it's uh, an argument against naturalism. Um, but then uh, in the second uh, step, as it were, it is then turns around into a, a positive argument uh, for some kind of at least broadly theistic kind of worldview in as much as asking the question, well, which worldview uh, does what thinking is, uh, what worldview does that sort of um, reality fit within best, if not in naturalism, what kind of worldview does give uh, thinking and rationality uh, a sort of coherent uh, home, as it were? And Lewis would argue that uh, a broadly theistic worldview uh, is the best explanation uh, of what's going on when humans um, think and, and argue uh, about things. So you said that the new atheists don't actually seem to have taken much notice at all of this argument from reason. So I am wondering, has this argument from reason been presented at all to the new atheists already? And if so, how have they responded to it, even in what little way that they have so far? Yeah, sure. I discussed two uh, incidents of this uh, in my book, one of which is a, a debate between the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga and the new atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett, uh, in which they discuss Alvin Plantinga's uh, recent variation upon the theme of this argument from reason. And there uh, it seems to me that Daniel Dennett um, simply asserts that evolution uh, by natural selection is capable of uh, producing the material mechanisms of our mind uh, in such a way that they are um, able to reason and are, are cognitively uh, reliable and so on. Um, and he asserts that uh, without really uh, grappling with um, Plantinga's versions of the arguments uh, for thinking that that isn't likely to be the case. So it seems to me he, he just doesn't really grapple with the detail of the argument, but just uh, makes uh, assertions that are really grounded in his worldview, since he thinks he's so confident that naturalism is true. Uh, naturalism must be able to account for the fact that we're, we're reasoning and thinking, since you know, that's what we're, we're doing. Um, although the interesting caveat on that, of course, is, is Dennett is, is one of the more extreme kinds of materialist when it comes to the mind, and would say that we, we don't really have consciousness um, so <laughs> that's an interesting one to throw in there. Uh, you know, what, what's actually going on when humans reason if we don't really have conscious awareness, as Daniel Dennett holds. Uh, the other incident I discuss is um, Paul Copan put uh, a version of Lewis's anti-naturalism argument from reason to Richard Dawkins. Uh, and Dawkins, um, by his reply, his foundering uh, reply to this, basically reveals that uh, this is not even a, a thought that has crossed his mind before, um, that one of the most discussed uh, issues in the debate between naturalism and 
uh, alternative worldviews at the moment in the in the contemporary philosophical literature is not one that Dawkins is at all familiar with and is completely um, unequipped uh, to make a, a coherent response to. Oh, and if I just might add, if that's OK, I think I've heard that audio clip before, actually. Yeah. So uh, Paul Copan are asking a question of Dawkins doing a, a, a book tour that Dawkins had in America recently. Yeah. Is, is there a link to that in the book at all? There is a, a reference in the book that you can follow to Copan's blog post and audio recording of his interaction with Dawkins on, on this argument from reason. Um, it's uh, footnote 104 in the chapter. It's uh, there on page 258 at the bottom. Um, if you're following it from Kindle, it should work fine. Um, from the hard copy, um, do note that there isn't uh, a hyphen after reclaim uh, in www reclaiming the mind it's just one word there's no hyphen there uh, that's just because the the address is going over one line <laughs> so uh, it's www.reclaimingthemind.org etc etc all right and of course we'll have that link in the show notes so when they follow it from my website they won't have any problem either Moving on to our next question that we want to have you tackle, uh, Peter S., is uh, it seems that if, if somebody is going to appeal to the existence of reason as evidence for God, then they have to make sure that atheism or naturalism cannot provide its own foundation for the existence of reason. How did Lewis argue that naturalism cannot account for reason? Lewis does it in a number of parallel, sort of mutually reinforcing ways, really. There's not just one uh, single argument here, but a number of, of different threads of uh, argument, uh, some of which are uh, simpler to put across uh, quickly than, than others. So, for example, um, in talking uh, about um, sort of the way in which a materialist worldview tends to uh, tends towards reductionism, tends to to try and reduce everything we experience to uh, these uh, explanations in terms of um, efficient causal relations between material objects, you know, atoms uh, and so on, behaving according to the laws of physics and so on. And Lewis points out, for example, that um, when uh, an astronomer is having thoughts about a star, uh, you know, uh, th that star is so many light years away and, and so on. Um, there are all sorts of relations, uh, physical relations that hold between the star and the, the brain of the astronomer, which for the materialist uh, is presumably the same thing as the mind of the astronomer in some way. All sorts of physical relations you know, uh, being so many light years away from um, having a certain gravitational attraction to, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but none of the, the properties on that, that physical list of, of relationships that you go through seem uh, to include such things as the thought being true about this sort of... Um, aboutness or, or what philosophers call intentionality of thought um, that when we have a, a true belief we have a thought about something um, uh, as the, the atheist um, Raymond Tallis uh, says this, this aboutness is almost um, it's the direct opposite kind of thing to a physical causation uh, to efficient causation it runs in against the grain of the physical world in that sense um, so how do you fit um, such a thing as having a thought that is true 
or false about something into a materialistic description of reality. Um, that's one way uh, in which uh, Lewis can, tries to bring out the way in which um, rationality, what we think is, is, is going on when we reason and argue about things, uh, really doesn't seem to actually fit within the world as, as described from a materialistic viewpoint. Now, I'm aware that in Lewis's own lifetime, he had his formulation, so to speak, of the argument from reason challenged. I think there was even quite a infamous encounter that he had a debate in Oxford where he felt quite shaken afterwards. But that um, leads me to wonder, is there any particularly strong atheistic response to the argument from reason that is in the literature today that Lewis might actually find new and challenging? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure Lewis would, if he were around, would continue to uh, debate and I think de- defend this argument. Uh, that the incident you refer to is one where the, the Catholic philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe had a debate with Lewis uh, in Oxford uh, over this issue. And um, some people have, I think, rather overblown um, what happened there in order to try and, and um, uh, put Lewis or his argument here into a negative light. Um, what actually happened is that Anscombe, uh, as a professional uh, philosopher, made a uh, a technical criticism of one of the ways in which Lewis was defending the argument. Um, Lewis conceded the technical point, but immediately reformulated the argument in order to avoid it, as the notes of that particular Socratic Club meeting show. And indeed, a few years later, uh, revised the chapter uh, in his book Miracles uh, on the argument from reason uh, in light of that criticism in order to avoid it and um, uh, continue to defend a slightly tweaked version of the argument in the in the second edition. Uh, of miracles, for example. So he didn't um, think that his argument had been at all uh, brought crashing to the ground by what Anscombe said. And indeed, during the 1970s, actually, there was a a rerun of uh, the debate uh, with Elizabeth Anscombe again on one side and uh, Lewis's argument being defended uh, by the the philosopher J.R. Lucas. And uh, certainly Lucas uh, felt on that occasion that he was able to defend uh, the argument as a professional philosopher going toe-to-toe uh, with Anscombe on the same issues. Uh, and today, um, the argument continues to be defended uh, by a range of prominent philosophers and, and vigorously debated in the literature. Before asking the next question, let me uh, point out, as we've done in the past podcast here in this series, and that is we're uh, obviously not covering everything within the book. In fact, we're not necessarily following the exact structure of each chapter. And then the ways you're formulating some answers is not necessarily presented in the exact same way. So we hope people will definitely get the book. And then um, I encourage people to go back and listen to the not only the past uh, podcast, if you haven't already, but even the, the one you're listening to now, even as a person editing the program and having read through the book, I find that I'm still learning things about the, the material as I listen to it or read over it again and again. Well, then on to the uh, question, or next to last question, actually. You note that Lewis distinguishes between, quote, two different senses of the word because... My question is, how does this relate to the issue that you've been dealing with in this chapter? 
Sure. Well, very briefly, uh, if I can manage to put this briefly, um, these two different senses of, the, of because Lewis talks about. One is is the cause and effect sense of because, um, the physical sense of causal because X happened because of Y happened and so on. Um, the other sense of because is a relationship between um, a logical ground for thinking something and our conclusion that something uh, is the case. Uh, And Lewis gives a charming illustration of these two different senses of because he says, uh, uh, we might say, um, grandfather is ill today because, cause and effect, he ate the lobster yesterday and the lobster was off and so on. Or we might say, grandfather must be ill because, ground consequence sense of because, he hasn't got out of bed yet and we know he's invariably an early riser if he's well. And therefore, we conclude that uh, he must be ill. Uh, now, Lewis points out that what we think is going on when we're reasoning rationally about things is that we're drawing conclusions uh, on the basis of because of the good reason for arriving at that conclusion. But he says if a naturalistic worldview is true, uh, everything that really happens Uh, is part of a material system behaving according to the laws of physics. Everything happens uh, because of cause and effect, physical cause and effect, that sense of because. Um, So if uh, naturalism is true, our acts of thinking are nothing but events in nature. And the true answer to any uh, question like, uh, you know, why do you think that must begin with the cause and effect sense of because? Uh, but that means that the, uh, what, what do you do about the the fact that you want the, the true answer to that question if you're thinking that you're actually rationally arriving at a conclusion? The true answer should be the ground consequent sense of because rather than um, the cause and effect sense of because. Well, in that case, a naturalist would probably say, I'm not going to ask you this last question because I think it's a good question. Uh, I'm probably just physically determined to ask you this question. So here we go. Um, Lastly, you give the illustration of something called the Chinese room experiment. Yeah, that's quite intriguing. So, yeah. How is that relevant to this subject? Okay, well, uh, this is uh, philosopher John Searle's uh, argument uh, against reducing mind to just a process of computation, physical computation, really. Um, And he gives this uh, illustration of the difference between someone who understands the Chinese language and who you could ask questions in Chinese and they'd give you an answer in Chinese and simply... um, implementing a sort of a a program or some sort of algorithm in a physical system into which you could input Chinese questions and get the output of um, coherent Chinese answers. But um, since all there is, is a physical uh, system implementing an algorithm, that doesn't mean that there's any understanding of the Chinese language going on. So if I'm locked in a room and people put symbols under the door in Chinese that you know, I don't understand Chinese. These symbols are Chinese questions. I look up uh, what these shapes are in a big rule book that I'm given, and I, I turn the pages as the rule book say, and I, I output under the door back the shapes that I'm told to by the program. Um, then, uh, given a sophisticated enough 
program. Uh, we have there a system implementing an algorithm, uh, a computational uh, device, as it were, that uh, could output uh, correct answers in Chinese. But nonetheless, I don't understand Chinese. Um, the, the book of rules I'm following doesn't understand Chinese. The, the paper shapes, nothing there has any understanding of Chinese. But so says, well, if all there is is material things um, implementing algorithms uh, causally, um, then uh, how do you get how do you get the understanding of Chinese, the, the semantic understanding or content, uh, as opposed to simply the syntactic process uh, of implementing uh, an algorithm like that. Uh, indeed, it's interesting to see that Daniel Dennett uh, kind of concedes this distinction. Uh, and Dennett says that our brains are syntactic engines, not semantic engines, which he says are, are physically impossible, like perpetual motion machines. Um, but clearly, I would say we do have, um, there is semantic content. We do have understanding of the meaning of what we're arguing about. Um, uh, we're not um, simply uh, physical systems implementing a, a, a syntactic algorithm, um, that we do manage to, to somehow bridge uh, this gap, which Dennett says, um, physically speaking, uh, is impossible to do. Uh, and so that seems to bring in the need to bring in something beyond the physical in order to account for um, the, the, the level of, of meaningful understanding of what's going on in argument, uh, rather than simply trying to explain it as oh it's just a physical system that you could um you know uh, given a, a complicated enough algorithm and so on you can just explain it all in sort of terms of of raw computing power when i said that was a final question a follow-up one would it be any different if say for languages that are, are more or less accents like say british or irish is there an irish i'm, I'm kidding <laughs> anyway Unfortunately, we will have to end our exploration of the argument from reason, Chapter 4, from C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. I'm William O'Flaherty, the creator of this All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. If this is your first time listening to this series on Peter S. Williams' book, or my program in general, or maybe you're just a casual listener, you may not be aware that you can check the show notes for links to places online mentioned in this episode. Accomplish this by visiting EssentialCSLewis.com or by going to the direct location the audio files are hosted at allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Again, allaboutjack.podbean.com. You can also find the previous programs in this series on C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist and other shows related to Lewis. In the past, I've done single interviews with Dr. Devin Brown, Dr. Lewis Marcos, and Douglas Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, also, earlier this year, in 2014, if this is when you're listening to the program, I did a four-part mini-series with Dr. Crystal Hurd on Lewis's view of women. Again, you can catch all of that by going to allaboutjack.podbean.com or by visiting essentialcslewis.com. Next time, we're going to explore Chapter 5, entitled The Problem of Goodness. Before leaving, let me thank my co-host for working with me again today. Thanks, Peter B. Thank you. Uh, Peter B., let me uh, have you talk a little bit about the experience you had in creating the dramatic clips that we share at the beginning of each program. Yeah, well, that was great fun. Um, well, basically, 
a while ago, um, Peter S. Williams got in touch with me and said, uh, would you would you be up for making a, a little sort of YouTube promotional video for the for the book C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists as it was coming out? Um, and he explained the premise to me of, you know, this idea of, you know, what if C.S. Lewis came back today and got into a debate situation with new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Hitchens or Grayling um and that I just fell in love with that very idea itself really it just set my imagination going just just dramatically picturing the the, the kind of arguments that they would have you know the the way that um you know Lewis would talk to Dawkins and how Dawkins might respond to him or imagining Lewis with um Christopher Hitchens down the Eagle and Child, you know, both both having a pint and a smoke and, you know, having a big argument. So um, so basically, I came up with the idea of dramatizing these promotional clips um, so that while it's introducing what the book is about, it just gives it that that little dramatized kick uh, to get people going and to get them um, sort of energized about imagining the idea of what if Lewis came back what would he say to these uh, new atheists so um, there was a good bit of sort of um, sort of drawing and animation involved for that but the really fun bit was I teamed up with a very good friend of mine called Daniel Mumby and we scripted quickly some um, imaginary situations of things that uh, Lewis might argue with with the new atheists based on their own quotations based on things that Lewis has said based on things that the new atheists have said, even a few remarks they've made about C.S. Lewis. And yeah, we had a great sort of little recording session after church, basically, where um, Daniel did a very good job doing... He did the voice of C.S. Lewis. I I didn't want to do all of them because I I just don't think I could have done that range. So I gave him C.S. Lewis to do. And so he went away and listened and practiced a bit. Uh, Daniel did a great job you know, getting the voice together on that. And then I just had the the privilege <laughs> of, um, you know, voicing, um, uh, you know, people like Dawkins and Hitchens. And, and yeah, we, we played them off against each other and, um, you know, just sort of fitted their quotations together into an imagined dramatized situation. So um, we, we put those together um, into these little YouTube videos. Uh, they're up there. If you search C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, you're, you're, you're bound to uh, stumble on those and you'll see the kind of thing I'm talking about. And then the, the fun thing, of course, about co-hosting this with you, William, was that um, I got to go back to the original recording reel of the stuff that myself and Daniel did. And we get to have those little introduction to the start of the podcast um since daniel had helped me out with doing those um those bits of recordings for the the book promotion somebody else a youtuber by the name of inspiring philosophy got in contact with him and got him to record in the voice of lewis as he acts it the essay of c.s lewis called man or rabbit which is all about you know, addressing that question that people ask, uh, you know, can't you lead a good life without believing in Christianity, basically? And he, they've done a very good job on that video. It's it's Daniel reading C.S. Lewis's essay, a brilliant essay with very good music and images behind it. Um, so if you search man or rabbit on um, YouTube, man or rabbit, you should end up uh, with that video version of the essay. I think you'll find it very enjoyable. And so uh, before we leave on uh, this episode, Peter S. Williams, um, let's hear a bit about another one of your books. Um, Some atheists might 
even, well, maybe not just atheists. Some people might think it's got a bit of a provocative title. It's called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. The the, the atheist community, particularly, uh, I think the American atheist community have tried to sort of uh, um, uh, retain the word skeptic to uh, sort of define uh, their position to say I'm a skeptic that seems to in some quarters be synonymous with uh, saying uh, I'm a, I'm an atheist or, or whatever. Of course, the word doesn't uh, mean that it's not synonymous with being an atheist. It uh, it, it means uh, being someone who wants to uh, think carefully about what you're going to believe, uh, and uh, in those terms. Uh, certainly one can be a, a skeptic and be a believing theist, a believing Christian. So uh, in that sense of uh, applying rigorous critical judgment to one's beliefs, uh, I would uh, say I'm a skeptic uh, and uh, this is my guide as a skeptic to atheism. Indeed, I'm a skeptic of atheism. Uh, so I, I see no reason why we can't use that term uh, uh, as well. And this really, uh, this was published in 2009 uh, as my sort of um, direct uh, engagement uh, with the uh, the panoply of the new atheism at that stage. And whereas in the, the C.S. Lewis book, I'm really going through sort of looking at Lewis's journey uh, from atheism to faith and then um, seeing what the new atheists say about that, how they kind of engage with uh, that process that Lewis was going through, engage on those issues um, here I'm, I'm start with uh, what the new atheists are saying uh, and then critique that from the point of view of uh, an analytical philosopher uh, looking for what is the, the, the cogency, uh, the validity of their analyses and their arguments and so on. And uh, frankly showing, uh, I think, rather comprehensively that the, the new atheists simply don't cut the philosophical mustard, as it were. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Well, before we let you go, Peter S., let me thank you for being on the show. And I'm hoping you might give us a, a brief preview of the next chapter before we wrap up. First, uh, remind us what the title of this next chapter is. Sure. Okay. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, the problem of goodness. Uh, we're probably more used to talking about the problem of evil uh, in uh, the apologetics arena. Uh, but this chapter is called the problem of goodness. All right, well, that's something I hope that no one will miss. And everyone listening today will consider telling others about this show, All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. Mm-hmm.